turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We continue today in our teaching through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. This is a critically important letter in our New Testaments, which reminds us of our rootedness in the gospel and the implications that our rootedness in this gospel holds for us in our practical worship. And so today, specifically, we will focus on verses 4 through 6. We began chapter 4 last week in verses 1 through 3, and as we talked about last week, chapter 4 is a pivot point in this letter. I won't rehearse all of that again, but it's important to remember the flow, the construct of this letter, so that we can understand it. Context is king whenever it comes to interpreting the scripture. You have heard the adage in real estate, perhaps whenever you bought your house, that real estate is about location, location, location. Well, in so many ways, that's the same way that we must lurk at the scriptures. It's context, context, context. And so we're always trying to remind ourselves of, of where we've been, both in the immediate context and in the broader context. So in the immediate context, in chapters 4 through 6, Paul is calling the church in Ephesus to walk out the walk that is in keeping with their calling. We saw that last week in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This was deeply implanted within Paul's heart. He took this very seriously. And he proved that with his own life. He, he walked the walk and he talked the talk as well. He was in prison for walking the walk and now he talked the talk by calling people to do the same, to lay their lives down on the line for that's what Jesus had done for them. Jesus had laid his life down to bring these people back into a reconciled relationship with their creator. And if that is true, and if they were participants in that hope, in that calling, they should walk in a manner worthy of that. And so over the next several months, as we go through Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, we will explore just that. A life that is led in keeping with such a high calling. And as we talked about last week, we must remember that God made all things for His glory. And He is restoring us in Christ for His glory. That is the calling upon our lives. We will never, this side of eternity, this side of the restoration, do that perfectly. We will have divided hearts. We will struggle with a host of sins. And yet, the trajectory of our worship, of our lives, should be upward and onward. And that is, in so many ways, why the church exists, that we might mutually pursue this together. For sin is blinding, sin is deceiving, and sin is often still strong. And so we are called together to fight sin and to pursue righteousness together for the glory of God and for our mutual joy. And therefore, the church is not this dispensable thing. The context of Paul's writing is that the church is the place in which all this gets worked out. A family in which we can enjoy one another's love and encouragement and occasional admonishment that we might together pursue the glory of God, He who created us and He who redeemed us. And in so many ways, this is what Paul's writing is about in its broader sense. As Paul writes places like Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Corinthians, Paul is pointing out sin and Paul is pointing us to Jesus that we might live for his glory. In fact, this is the point of the New Testament to help us understand that God has sent Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, the promised Messiah, 
to rescue us from sin and to renew us to worship. And indeed, this is the point of the entirety of the Scriptures, where God reveals Himself to not be just Creator, not just powerful God, but loving Redeemer, the one who made countless promises to His covenant people in the Old Testament. And though they were often heartless and disobedient, and even worse, ran from Him, God still kept His promise to bring a Savior and restore His people to Himself. And so shrinking back down to the near context, Ephesians is written to a real church and real space and time who had real problems and real divided hearts and needed teaching from one who loved them to call them back to reality, who they were and what they were called to. And that's why we gather together today. We're much like this church, a real church in real time and space. And though we might think we are more sophisticated 2,000 years onward, we are much the same. We are often waking up each morning asking ourselves, for whom will I live today? Now, we may not verbalize those words, we may not even articulate them inaudibly in our heads, but as we walk through the day as the people of God, we are making choices all of the time. Who will we follow? What will we treasure And in Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, Paul is saying that we who have been treasured by God before the foundation of the world and rescued through the sacrificial love of His Son and have been brought together as His people in this thing we call the church, that we together are to treasure Him above all. So we gather together today to be reminded of that. And practically together today, I hope that we will see that the one who created this thing that we call the church and the one who sustains this thing we call the church has called us to hope in him, to hold fast to his truth, the gospel. That we will do so not only for ourselves, but for our children. And that we will be light in a dark place and salt And that we will reflect the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ here and all over the place. I want to read together Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. And then we're going to look at some historical context so that we can understand the the context of this church and, and how it existed and what it was like. So let's read these six verses and then we're going to turn together to the book of Acts, where Paul has some direct ministry to the church there in Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. We are going to see together today how the loving unity that we were called to last week in verses 1 through 3, loving unity that is characterized by humility and gentleness and patience, and bearing with one another in love and eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How that kind of love is motivated by God's love. As John says in his first epistle, we love because He, God, first loved us. And so we will see this link in these six verses of the opening of this new section in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus the link between God's love for us and the way that we love each other. Paul shows us what this looks like in Acts chapter 20. Let's turn there together.
Paul was directly responsible for the planting of the church in Ephesus. In chapter 19, we find Paul there contending for the faith, sharing the good news and seeing a church formed. In Acts chapter 20, after Paul leaves Ephesus because of conflict, he calls the Ephesian elders to himself. He wants them to come to him so he can give them some instructions. So think about what we're doing here. We are, we are reading a letter in Ephesians chapters 1 through 6 that Paul wrote to the church, but here in Acts chapter 20, we get some insight into a little dialogue between Paul and the leaders of this church, which is interesting. Now in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Luke records for us, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, Paul did, and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, It happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. We already saw in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 today that Paul called himself a prisoner. So Paul prophesies what's going to happen to him. He says now in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul embodied a worthy walk in keeping with the calling that had been given to him in Christ. And now verse 25, I be, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul is confident that his life is going to come to an end. He's going to lay his life down. It's going to cost him dearly. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul is going to lay his life down because he preaches the gospel. Notice the instructions now in verse 28 that he gives to the Ephesian elders. Take careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So there's the, there's the high price and then the high calling. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What had Paul done? He had preached the whole counsel of God, especially the good news, the gospel of Jesus. He had done so faithfully at his own peril. And eventually it would cost him everything. And by tradition, Paul had his head lopped off for preaching this gospel. But he calls the Ephesian elders to be vigilant, to be aware that inevitably people would come into this city and into this church and bring in false doctrine and seek to lead the people astray. This is satanic, it is devilish in its roots and its origins. For Satan hates God. Satan hates Jesus, the Son of God, who brings people back to God. Therefore, Satan hates God's church. For in destroying the people of God's church, he seeks to diminish the glory of God. Paul was fully aware of this. As we will learn later on in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says to the church in Ephesus that they don't wrestle against flesh and blood exclusively, but against things they cannot see, things of satanic origin. Paul knew well 
that the church would be ravaged by bad doctrine, which would lead it astray. It would act like an acid, dissolving the very foundations of the church. And Paul wanted these Ephesian elders to be on guard. Turn with me, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul invested in a lot of people, people like Luke who wrote the book of Acts. Perhaps the one in whom Paul invested the most of his time and energies was this man named Timothy. He was like a son to Paul. Paul loved Timothy very much. Paul loved the church in Ephesus very much, and he put his best protege there. So it's interesting that as we read the book of Ephesians together and study it together, there's a lot that we know about this church. We saw some already in Acts chapters 19 and 20 where we just read. But we learn a lot about the condition of this church and others like it by reading First and Second Timothy. For in many ways, we could consider Timothy the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And by reading what Paul says to Timothy in First and Second Timothy, we learn a lot about this church and what Paul wanted for it. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In chapter 3, Paul gives qualifications for the leaders of the church, both the overseers or the elders, pastors, and the deacons. They are to be respectable, to have a dignified character. The primary distinction between the pastors, overseers, and elders, that's all one office, and the deacons is that the overseer, pastor, elders have to be able to teach. We saw that already in Acts chapter 20. They had to guard against bad doctrine. In many ways, the elders of any good church should be like gatekeepers, paying attention to the beasts that are outside seeking to destroy the church, being able to clarify what is true and distinguish between what is true and not true. Therefore, being able to teach is a basic guideline for one who will lead you here in this place. So we take that very seriously here. Why is that the case? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 clarifies this for us. I hope to come to you soon, Paul says to Timothy, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth, we could go on in First Timothy and Second Timothy and see more places where Paul says, be careful, guard the truth, preach the word. As we look back at the past 2,000 years of church history, that's the case. The truth of the matter is we should not be surprised whenever we see a church that at one time held to the Bible pure doctrine. We should not be surprised when churches abandon the faith because they do this again and again and again. It has been said that too often as we observe the cycles of church history that one generation perhaps will, will embrace and, and adore, will treasure the gospel. An ensuing generation may well, and we have seen this throughout the cycles of church history, just assume the gospel. Another generation, a third generation, may be indifferent to the gospel. Without vigilance and care, a fourth generation may deny it altogether. The song that we opened up our worship time together with today, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, was written in one of those first generation kind of eras. A time where God brought renewal to the church through people like Luther and Calvin and many others. A time where people recovered their hold on the gospel. 
pushing back against bad doctrine. One of the battle cries of the Reformation 500 years ago this year was the phrase, a Latin phrase, ad fontis, which means back to the sources, back to the fountain, back to the sources, back to the spring of life. And the idea on the reformers was to get back to the truth of the scriptures. And as we try to determine what the primary message of the scriptures are, we determine what God wants for us, what he has revealed to us and how we are to worship him. So that gives us context for what Paul writes in the book of Ephesians. We saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that the church was a pillar of truth, a place where God maintains his witness to the world. And we are like that today. The church at large, capital C, all churches all over the place that preach the good news of Jesus, that hold to the truth of the scriptures are like a pillar of truth, a place where God proclaims who he is and what he has done to the world. And then little c churches, individual churches like this one, like ours, we are to do that individually. All of us have a part to play, which is why back in Ephesians chapter 2, if you'd like to turn back there with me, Paul clarifies for this church in Ephesus who they were and the privileges that they had been given in Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So so we're built on a foundation. A foundation that was laid down by people like Paul. A foundation which was not transient. It was not of private interpretation. It was built upon the truth of the Scriptures. So let me make this as simple as I can. The Bible was given to us to show us who God is and how He would bring people back to Himself through His Son. That's the story of the Bible. Let me say it again. The Bible was given to us to show us who God is and how He would restore sinners to Himself in His Son. That is the predominant and overarching storyline of the Bible. When Jesus Christ came and lived in this world, keeping all the laws of God never sinning once, laying his life down, God raising him from the grave, ascending back to the right hand of God in power and authority, he left a witness. The original witnesses were the apostles. Paul was the last of the apostles to be called, formerly a persecutor, a murderer of Christians, one who formerly was a willful rebel, was made a son and a worshiper and a mouthpiece for God, sent out by God to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And as we saw already today in Acts chapter 20, Paul took that critically, seriously, willing to lay down his very life to make sure that the faith was handed on from generation to generation. He gave his best protege, one he had mentored with all of his energies, to this church in Ephesus to make sure that it held fast to the gospel. And then he wrote a letter to them to remind them that they were special, not because of anything good in them, because they had been set apart by God before the foundation of the world we saw in Ephesians chapter 1, that they would be a place where God manifests himself to the world like a temple. And therefore, we are the same. We are imperfect. We are often weak. We have divided hearts. You have imperfect leaders, and we lead imperfect people. We will never love perfectly. We will never be be perfectly unselfish. We'll, We'll never be perfectly humble. But still, God has set his affections upon us in Christ and made us like a temple 
And therefore, the fact that we are together today, each of us representing a stone that makes up this temple, is no small thing. But we are built on an objective reality. And our section today in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, clarifies to us what that reality is. We don't get to make it up. It shouldn't change over time. It's the same old truth. But it's not boring and stale. It's vital and it's life-giving. And we must hold fast to it. So let me clarify for you how loving unity to which we were called last week in verses 1 through 3, is so important for verses 4 through 6, holding fast to the truth. If we don't stay unified, if we don't collectively, collaboratively, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eagerly, mutually maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, if we don't see that as the as the the worthy walk to which we've all been called to, how can we ever be a witness for the truth of the gospel? I said to you last week that Satan, who is very crafty, knows how to rend the very fabric of a church like ours. Now, he might initially do it through doctrinal drift. That's possible. That has happened all over the place. As you look back through the annals of church history, Far too often, bad doctrine sort of infiltrates a place like leaven and then seasons the whole thing and then eventually, two, three, four generations later, a place that at one time was a vibrant bastion of faith can be a place that you can't even find the gospel at all anymore. Western Europe, where the gospel really took hold in the Protestant Reformation, you are hard-pressed these days to find a church that still preaches the gospel. Almost every single mainline denomination in our country today that have their roots in 16th and 17th century Puritanism, faithful doctrine, zealous for the truth of the scriptures, by and large, every single one of them denies the existence of God, even some of them. And even if they still do believe in the existence of God, they deny cardinal doctrines like the Trinity, that we are justified by grace through faith alone, that the scriptures contain the actual word of God without error. Things that were unthinkable two or three hundred years ago are embraced blithely today as though that any rational, enlightened person would believe such things. Churches like ours that that actually believe that we are reading the very word of God without error, that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, that God does exist as a trinity, though he is one God, that there is life after death, either blessed reunion with God through restoration or eternal punishment and torment, such doctrines are no longer held widely anymore. No wonder Paul warned the Ephesian elders. No wonder Paul called Timothy to fight the good fight of faith and to preach the word. No wonder he told the church in Ephesus that they were a place like a temple. No wonder he told Timothy that the church is the pillar of truth. And no wonder he reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, that there is one body and one spirit, just as we were called to one hope that belongs to our call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What's he teaching them in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6? He's teaching them doctrine, the foundation of their faith. And as we saw last week, They had to stay unified in humble, sacrificial love so that the witness of the church would remain. We will see as we will go on in the following verses beginning next week that Christ left gifts for the church, leaders who would equip the church to do the work of ministry so that it might grow in love, resisting bad doctrine and standing fast, maturing in Christ. This means that that what God has called us to a church is is of ultra importance. This means that what we believe, what we preach, and how we live together, maintaining the unity of spirit, is of critical importance. For, For guess what? The world around us today is perishing. And without Christ, 
the exclusive way back to God, the, the only one who takes the wrath of God and reconciles us to God, without him, they will perish eternally. So what we believe and what we teach and how we live together is of critical importance. So therefore, be on guard as a quick reminder of last week that Satan does not come in and and find loose threads and unravel the fabric of our relationships. Because if he can do that, our witness will be shot. Our focus on truth will be diminished. We will fall apart. So these two things are interdependent. The call to hang fast, to hold fast to the truth of the scriptures, in particular the gospel. On the other hand, our call to unity, our call to a unified walk gives us the opportunity to hold fast to the gospel. And because of the gospel, we are a unified people. Again, reciprocal interdependence. So last week, we realized and saw that we have been called to sacrificially and lovingly maintain the unity of our church. But to put it in context, to look at our verses for today, we must remember that we are members of Christ's body. So we've been called to such sacrificial love, seeking to maintain the unity of our church as members of Christ's body. Verse 4. Paul reminds us once again in this verse that there is one body. What does he mean by this? I think he means that there's one universal church. We are the people of God. It reminds us of what we just read at the end of chapter 2. Christ is the cornerstone of the structure of this holy temple. We will find later on in the same chapter that we are the people of Christ. He is the head of the body. Paul talks about this elsewhere in his writings, places like 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are individual members, but we are brought together in one body. But there's a sense to which our church is an individual member of a larger body. So all places all over the world that are holding fast to the truth of the scriptures, we are members of that larger body. And one day, we will be gathered together in the presence of God to worship Him in perfection and joy. So this is no small thing. Christ does not call, him to him, call us to Himself as members of His body so that we will take it lightly. In fact, he gave us a great metaphor of this that we will discover and explore later on in Ephesians chapter 5. The metaphor is marriage. Marriage is given to us for lots of reasons, to procreate, for relational enjoyment. But according to Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, marriage was given also for a theological reason. To show how Christ unified one to himself. This one is the church. So when a husband loves his wife, he demonstrates to all who are watching, his children, to the watching world, what it looks like to have a one flesh union. So husbands and wives, you understand this. This is why you hang together through thick and thin. It's why you confess the vows before the company in front of which you were married, for richer, for poor, and sickness and health, forsaking all others. So this one body thing, this, this body to which we have been called, this body of which we are a member as an individual church, it's no small thing. This calling is a high calling. We are the people of God. God says, I am holy. You should be holy. Israel was to be this. They were to be a peculiar people, a holy nation, zealous for good works. How much more we who have been given the promises of the new covenant, should we take seriously our union with Christ as members of his body? Just as you should never despise your spouse, forcing him or her to feel like he or she is a separate entity, but laying your life down for that person, your spouse, this one with whom you have been made one flesh, so we should take this body metaphor very, very seriously.
But not just this, we are indwelt and sealed by the Spirit. So we are called to this one body. Our church is a member of the broader body of Christ, and we've been given the one Spirit. As we will see as we go on in these verses, the Trinity shows up again. Paul keeps doing that in the book of Ephesians, showing us that our God exists in three persons. And the person that we see first here is the Spirit. We already saw back in chapter 1 that we have been sealed by the promised Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 13. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So here's the idea. All churches everywhere that hold fast to the Word of God and to the hope of the gospel of Jesus, they are members of His body, and our church is one of them. But we haven't arrived yet. We are not restored quite yet. What do we await? Glory, restoration, full salvation. How do we know that we will get there? Because God has made promises to this body. God has made promises to this temple. He's given us Jesus as the cornerstone, and He's given us His Spirit, the one that Jesus said would be the helper or comforter, the one who has sealed us and will bring us to glory. This means that we can hope in the full assurance that we will one day be fully restored. So the Spirit keeps us together, and the Spirit promises us that we will make it till the end. So we are called to sacrificial, loving unity as members of Christ's body, indwelt and sealed by the Spirit. So, so see what's happening here already? God the Son has made us part of His body, and God the Spirit keeps us connected to Jesus. This means that God is the one who initiates salvation, God is the one who maintains salvation, and God is the one who will complete salvation. But we do have a role to play. We call each other to remember this good news. The good news that Christ has made us part of His body. The good news that we have been given the Spirit and renewed. We are called to remind each other of the truth and to embody this kind of love, to reflect it to each other. As we see at the end of verse 4, we are to be hoping always in our sure calling. There's one body. There's not multiple ways back to God. There's one. There's one Spirit the one who draws us to God and will one day restore us fully to God. And there's one hope. I, I think this is a subtle way of reminding us of the gospel. This hope of calling that he talks about at the end of verse 4. What is our calling? Our calling is to come back to God. Our calling is to be restored to worship once again. Our calling is to be members of the body of Christ. Our calling is to turn from rebels into worshipers. We saw this in chapter 2. In verse 1, Paul says, You were dead, and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That was our condition. We were dead. But verse 4, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's our calling. From death to life. From going our own way to being once again reconciled to God. So as we see in verse 4, Paul's clarifying doctrine for this church. It's interesting. He called them to loving unity in verses 1 through 3. But now once again he reminds them of doctrine. So let me say this to you before we go on any further. We are not just gathered together as a people around personalities. We're not just gathered together around some sort of similar interest or, or common purpose. Those things are partially true, but it, they don't tell the whole story. The truth of the matter is, we are called together around common truth. But, but it's not just dusty old truth that's left in a library somewhere. It's vital truth. It's, it's the hope of life. 
It's the truth that brings the dead back to life. It's the truth that restores people back to God. It's the truth that leads us to eternal glory. It's the truth that reminds us that we can be restored to the Creator and find fullness of joy. So it should be that all churches everywhere hold fast truth. They don't diminish it. They realize that often, and without being vigilant, it will be eclipsed. And therefore, they will do everything they can to clarify it and to teach it over and over and over again. My friends, there is nothing new under the sun. It should be that we hear a lot of the same things over and over and over again. Reminders, being called back to the simple truth of the gospel, plumbing its depths for all of our lives, we might understand it better and hold fast to it. To return to our metaphor of marriage, isn't this what marriage is often like? Those of us who enjoy our spouses and have been married for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. In some ways, you're learning new little wrinkles, perhaps literally, about each other. But by and large, they're the same people. Certainly growing and changing, but the same person. But you study your wife. You, you learn of your husband. You learn what they like. And after you've been married for a while, sometimes you can even complete their thoughts. But it's not because you took it blithely or lightly. It's because you took it seriously. Learning, growing, being faithful to one another, to the one to which you were called. I think doctrine's like that. You should be a little bit wary, W-A-R-Y, if you hear brand new things. Now, if you've never been in a church that preaches the Bible, you might be hearing brand new things all the time. But if you've heard the Bible preach pretty well for a long time, you shouldn't be hearing brand new things. That should scare you a little bit. What you should be hearing are the same things. Preach creatively, taught with, with care and different kinds of ways. That you might understand it better, learning it more just like you might your spouse over time, the same person but knowing them more deeply, more intimately than you did when you first met them. That's what doctrine is like. And those of us who have successful, if you will, healthy marriages have not grown bored in the process. We have learned over time that though we are married to the same person, we know them so much better. And it's not a dreary process. It's a beautiful process to know a person that well. And though perhaps the metaphor is imperfect, I think doctrine is often the same way. The same truth perhaps that we embraced when we were seven or eight or nine is the same truth that we embrace today. We know it so much more intimately and we trust Jesus all the more. So we've been called to sacrificially love and maintain the unity of our church as members of his body, and dwelled and sealed by the Spirit, hoping in our sure calling. This means that it will come to pass. It's not just a maybe, it's a definite. But also, as we see in verse 5, we're trusting and obeying Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 5, Paul says that there is one Lord. He's Lord of the church. He is the one who initiated it by his death and resurrection. And he is the one who superintends it now from heaven. It's interesting as you consider the conversion of Paul, one who was seeking to stamp out Christianity in its early days. As he's on the road to Damascus to haul more people off to prison and by all accounts have them executed. A bright and shining light appears from heaven. What's Paul's first response? Who are you, Lord? He spoke better than he knew. And what was the response that he got? I am Jesus whom you persecute. Paul was fully aware that he was in the presence of the one true God. 
And Jesus clarifies that it was he himself that was calling Paul to renewal. And Paul never got over that. For the rest of his days, Paul was a mouthpiece for the Lord Jesus. One day, all will recognize that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is not some helpless person who was forced to lay his life down. Jesus did it willingly. And in so doing, one day, he will be lifted up as Lord of all, as Paul clarifies in Philippians chapter 2, for one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, saint and sinner alike. But by the grace of God and thanks be to God, he is our Lord. We already saw that he's the cornerstone back in chapter 2, verse 20. We will find that he is the head of his church here later on in chapter 4. He is the one who saved us, and he is the one who rules over us. It's amazing that Jesus, our Lord, can be both sacrificial lamb. John the Baptist called him this. When Jesus appeared for his baptism, John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus atones for the sins of his people willingly. But Jesus is also like a lion. The lion of Judah who rules over his church. The Alpha and the Omega. The one who holds the keys to all things. The deed to the earth. The one over whom he... The one through whom we have access to God and will be the Lord of his people. Jesus is Savior and King all at once. So there is one that we worship. There is one that we obey. There are not multiple ways back to God and there are not multiple authorities over his people. This means that practically speaking, we must trust Jesus and Jesus exclusively as the way back to God. And it means also that we must obey him exclusively. As he reveals his will to us through his word, which is one of the reasons why we explore it in such depth, we learn how he wants us to live. He is our one Lord. But we're not only trusting and obeying Jesus, we're holding fast to his gospel. So there's one Lord beginning at verse 5, and in the middle of verse 5, there's one faith. I guess we could say that this means all doctrine, all biblical doctrine. Paul probably had in mind here the gospel itself. The good news that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and was resurrected. And if any will hope in Jesus, trust him, they will be restored to God. I think that's probably what he means by the one faith. The one faith that we can be brought back to God. Through Jesus, the one and only way. This is always under attack. What was Luther doing 500 years ago? Pushing back against the notion that you can earn favor with God through your own actions. Something that is nowhere taught in the scriptures. If the Reformation was anything, it was a renewal to the pure gospel. It was more than that, but it was at least that. I've already said to you that one of the battle cries of the Reformation was ad fontis, back to the sources. Let us, let us know how to live and believe. Let's go back to what God revealed in the Bible. Another cry of the Reformation, to give you another Latin phrase for the day, was semper reformanda, which means always reforming. It has been asked as of late, is the Reformation over? And as long as fierce wolves stalk the church... As long as there are threats to the pure gospel of God, the Reformation is not over. We are always to be reforming, going back to the sources, learning what is true, and living in light and faith. What is this one faith? Well, we've already clarified it is the gospel of Jesus that brings us back to God and is the hope of the world. It is under attack today, much like it was in Luther's day and as it was in Paul's day. Paul prophesied well. We see this right now in one of the best-selling books that is on Christian bookshelves called The Shack. Some of you might 
have it at home because you're intrigued by it. A movie was recently made uh, in keeping with the book. The basic premise of the book is that a man who underwent great tragedy has an encounter with a triune-like God, though that gets tweaked throughout the story, the narrative of the book. But underlying the sort of nice feeling of this book about how a man gets comforted after great loss and plums into the mysterious depths of God's providence is a notion that sin really isn't that bad. That all will come back to God. One of the beliefs of the author of the book is that people basically will all be reconciled to God, whether you believe in Allah and worship Him and see Muhammad as the great prophet or whether you believe that sacraments make you righteous before God or whether you believe in thousands of God that bring you good karma and enlightenment, that all paths basically lead back to God. Universal reconciliation. And by last count that I read, something like 20 million copies of this book have been read. What does this show? It shows that the church far too often is easily duped. That we like things that feel good, that sound good. After all, don't we hope, don't all of us legitimately hope that all people will make it back to God? I hope that. I wish that. But because of the understanding that the Scriptures give us, going back to the sources and ignoring contemporary authors, because the sources tell us that all are dead in trespasses and sins, and that Jesus is the only way to come back to God, and God does this by sovereign grace, no matter how we feel about the notion that sinners are accountable to God, we have to hold fast to what the Scriptures teach. What's the one faith? The one faith is that Christ and Christ alone restores us to God. That may not be popular. It may be a hard truth. It is a hard truth. And yet it's what the Scriptures teach us. And we must hold fast to it. There's one faith. Paul was careful to teach good doctrine, hard though it was. Paul was not imprisoned, and Paul did not have his head cut off because he taught a gospel that all could accept. Paul lost his head, laid down his life because he preached this gospel. I suspect that in our day and age, most of us will not have our heads chopped off for believing such a gospel. But people around the world are having that done today. Not because they believe in universal reconciliation and deny what the scriptures say, but because they hold fast to what they do say. You know that there were more martyrs killed in the name of Jesus Christ and his pure gospel in the 20th century than the previous 19 combined. And so we are called to hold to the one faith. We're not just holding fast to his gospel, however. We're enjoying union with him. We see this at the end of verse 5, this one baptism. Paul probably doesn't mean water baptism here. He probably means spiritual baptism. He clarifies this for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We've been baptized into the body of Christ. Now, our physical baptism by water demonstrates this. It's an outward reality of a an outward expression of an inward reality that has been said and perhaps overused. But when we are put down under the water, as we believe here, and brought back out, it shows that we died to sin and have been brought back to life. We've been unified to Christ, not by that outward expression, but by what the Spirit has done within us. So we are baptized physically, literally, to demonstrate what has happened to us inside. What has God done? He's given us His Spirit and unified us to Christ. So we have one baptism, one union with God, and we enjoy that together. And lastly, as we see in verse 6, we have one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Or to make it perhaps more simple, we are kept by God the Father for His own glory. God fills all 
And I think by all here, he means his people. The temple that we saw at the end of chapter 2 and verses 20 and 21 and 22. He fills that temple with his presence, much like he did in the Old Testament whenever he had David bring the tabernacle close to Jerusalem, when he had Moses erect it in the first place, when he eventually, as Solomon built it, he fills that place with his glory. But as Jesus clarifies in the Gospels, it's not going to be a specific locale like Jerusalem in a building where God dwells. It's going to be in his people. This means that there's outposts of his presence all over the place. We are an outpost of his presence here in this world. He's our God and he is our Father and he rules and reigns in us and through us. So, notice that Paul keeps saying over and over again in verses 4 through 6, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. God gets to make the rules. He's God after all. He gets to tell us what is true, what we are to believe, and how we are to live. So it's interesting that in this section where Paul calls the church to transformed living and their ethic of love, he reminds them in verses 4 through 6 what they were to believe. So how we live together is really important. Because as we live together in loving unity, we maintain a place like this where the gospel can be embraced and upheld, where relational disunity won't disrupt that or threaten that. And again, conversely, because it's reciprocal, because we hold fast to this one hope that we didn't come up with, that we don't even maintain, we can be unified. How do we practically apply this as we walk away? Well, let's not forget the link. Be careful against all tendency toward relational disunity. That will probably be what disrupts a church like ours. We take great pains to teach the Bible carefully. But if we do not stay relationally unified with sacrificial love, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and we'll see more of this as we go on, guess what happens to this pure doctrine that we uphold? Nobody cares. We will rend apart. We will not be a place where the gospel is upheld and preached which holds scary implications for our mission. We will see as we go on in chapter 4 that the mission of the church is to make disciples, to make sure that generationally more and more people worship God. But if we aren't lovingly unified, it doesn't matter what we believe. So the first implication of such a text is to stay relationally, sacrificially, lovingly unified. Each of you has a responsibility to do just that. That the gospel may be upheld, not just for us, but for our children and their children. This means that you must forgive for the sake of pure doctrine. You must bear with one another for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It might, that you must be humble and gentle toward each other. When you have a tendency toward selfishness and disunity, remember that the purity of the gospel upheld and proclaimed in many ways depends upon the way you live together. This means that the way you deal with offenses, the way you serve each other, the way you think about each other, the way you choose not to gossip or slander against one another has great bearing upon upholding the very mystery of the faith. And then conversely, how is it that you can live with such gentleness, humble, sacrificial love? By being reminded of what the pure gospel is. So here and again lies the reciprocal nature of this text. Be lovingly, sacrificially, humbly unified. Be eager to maintain this. Why? So that the gospel would be upheld and proclaimed. And then reciprocally, hold fast to the gospel. The reminder that you have been reunited to God by sheer grace. Nothing good within us, loved by God anyway. How? God sacrificed His Son that we need not be punished and once again become sons and daughters, adopted back into his family, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 1. And then knowing this, we will love each other with sacrificial, humble, patient love. 
You see how these two things work together round and round we go? Love each other that the gospel may be upheld. Hold fast to the gospel that you might be reminded of what pure love looks like and then reflect it back to each other. There's an inextricable link between verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6. So to say it one more time, love each other patiently so that the gospel may be embraced, upheld, and proclaimed. Know the gospel. Embrace it. Be overwhelmed by it that you might love like this. This is the logic of Paul's thought, and it is that to which we have been called. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now by your Spirit, I pray that you will remind us of this truth, that you will plant it deep within us, shape and fashion us for your glory. Change the way we think, transform our affections, our hearts, that we might uphold the truth of the glorious gospel that you've given us, so that we might walk in love. And that also that we might walk in love, that we might uphold your truth. Help us, we pray, to bring you glory in this pursuit, to walk worthy. Do this for your glory. Do it for our joy. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.